Shut up and sit down. Listening to The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. Here's your host, John Lund. Hello, everyone. You're listening to The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. I'm your host, John Lund, the multimedia sports enthusiast, bringing you this sports show. What's it like to become a college football analyst after playing in the NFL? We'll talk about that and whatever else I happen to have up my sleeve on episode 48 of The Bridge. <laughs> Greetings and salutations, everyone. Welcome back to another installment of The Bridge, coming to you live on Sports Radio America every Wednesday night, 7 to 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, to bring you the best and brightest of the sports world. That's right, The Bridge is live on Sports Radio America every Wednesday night, though the show is technically pre-recorded. If you do miss the live show, the podcast version of The Bridge is available 48 hours after the initial broadcast, which means you can find the newest episode on iTunes or on my website at londonbridge.com on Friday nights for the best pre-game sports show in the history of radio. I'll save all the ways you can listen to The Bridge and where you can find the show until the end of this latest installment. If anything, you can always call in or text into the show 24-7 at 929-BRIDGE-7. That's 929-274-3437. Contact the show with your questions, comments, stories, or hot takes, and you might just be featured in the next installment of The Bridge. All right, plenty to get into this week. Give me the siren. There's some sports teams that have a dress code, or at least some form of dress code, for when players both leave and arrive at the game. Some players have some interesting fashion choices, to say the least, but it's rare that we'll hear of any flack coming from them. That wasn't the case this past Sunday, though. It's time for the number one parody anchor segment in sports radio. Here's this week's edition of Sports News Read Like Real News. Whatever happened to predictability? The Milkman, the Paperboy, Evening TV. Years ago, in a simpler time, the life of an athlete seemed so much simpler. Professional athletes dressed the part, showing up to the ballparks or stadiums in a suit and tie, a long trench coat depending on the weather, but as the salaries of athletes slowly began blowing out of proportion, so too did the fashion sense of the wealthy gladiators. Maybe Joe Namath's fur coat is to blame for the start of the snowball effect. Or that the downturn began when basketball shorts had the nerve to come in contact with the kneecaps. Perhaps there was no going back once Yankee Doodle stuck a feather in his cap. Though it's difficult to tie things together from then to now, there might be a way to tie in poor fashion choices to the discipline handed out this past Sunday. 
NFL quarterback and reigning most valuable player Cam Newton has unleashed a fashion sense that would make even David Bowie or Lady Gaga blush. From his shoes, to his socks, from his pants to his jackets, and most notably, those ugly, ugly hats, Cam almost always makes his presence known. We should have known that a hooded sweatshirt after the Super Bowl surely meant for a quick exit from his interview. But until Sunday, Cam has never received off-the-field punishment for his attire as one of the faces of the No Fun League. So when it was announced that he would not be starting for the Carolina Panthers in their tilt with the Seattle Seahawks Sunday night, rumors quickly swirled as to why. Who did he wrong? Was he frightened of the Legion of Boom? Did he dab on him just a little too hard? Did he violate a team rule? Oh, did he ever, and what a horrific rule violation it was. The reigning MVP was benched for the first series against the Seahawks for not wearing a tie. That's right, the man who has pushed fashion limits to the brink was told to sit by head coach Ron Rivera for not accessorizing his neck. Though that decision seemed harmless, it backfired on Rivera as he's still in the league candidate Derek Anderson threw an interception on the first play of the game. When Cam returned to the field, the Panthers already trailed 3 to nothing. In fact, the decision weighed so heavily on Cam Newton, Carolina scored just 7 points en route to a 40 to 7 loss. After the game, Riverboat Ron addressed the media regarding Tygate saying it was a coach's decision to bench his superstar for the first series. A video was even released by TMZ that showed Rivera calling Cam off the bus to inform him of the ruling. Cam's response was to roll his eyes. Cam also addressed the decision after the game, saying he supported his coach for the discipline, though his later answers left some scratching their heads. Cam dressed for the press conference the same way he reportedly did for the flight to Seattle, in a black turtleneck, overcoat, and of course, a hat. He claimed he didn't pack enough clothes, since the team had stayed in California for the week after playing the Raiders the game before. So when he came on the team flight, he realized that he wasn't wearing a button-up shirt that would warrant a tie. In fact, that was his reason for not wearing one. The fashionista simply answered that a tie wouldn't go well with his shirt. He also addressed why he didn't just borrow a button-down shirt from a teammate, saying that it's hard to find shirts for someone who's six foot five. Derek Anderson, the he's still in the league candidate and backup quarterback for the Panthers, is listed as six foot six. Cam also noted that his naked neck was not the reason that they lost the game, saying, quote, We didn't lose this game because of a tie. Rumors have also swirled that Cam wasn't simply benched because of a tie. Barstool sports writer Jerry Oldballs Thornton said that a source informed him that Cam was disciplined for taking some teammates to the strip club while staying near San Francisco between games. Whatever the real reason may be, we're led to believe what Ron Rivera and Cam concocted to the media on Sunday. Cam Newton had to sit down for not suiting up. I'm John Lund. 
for sports news read like real news. Let's take a quick break to keep on the Christmas lights. When we come back, we'll talk to a former NFL player turned college football analyst about all things college football playoffs. We'll be back on the bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. We had the pleasure of chatting with Anthony Heron. He is a former NFL and AFL player and coach and is now an analyst for the Pac-12 Network. He also dabbles in work with NBC, ESPN, and CBS as well. The man is engrossed in college football. He is a former Big Ten football player from Iowa. He played a little bit with the Detroit Lions in the early 2000s and eventually made his way into the broadcast booth, so he has a pretty great story of getting to that point and now with the Pac-12 network and to no surprise he does know a thing or two about the college football playoff so we'll get into some of his thoughts about when we moved from the BCS to the college football playoffs maybe some things that need to be tweaked around or some of the main things teams now need to do to make the four-team college football playoff then we will deal with the two semifinal games before the championship and get into some of the other bowl games that will be happening in the coming weeks, as well as the Heisman Trophy finalists. So plenty to talk to with Big Ant. You can also follow him on Twitter. He's at Big Ant Heron. That's B-I-G-A-N-T-H-E-R-R-O-N. He'll not only keep you updated on some of the different things going on in the Pac-12, but over the entire slate of college football. So he's a great follow on Twitter and was a great interview for us. We'll break this interview into two parts since that will be the main segment for this show. The first half will deal with how he was able to get to the broadcast booth after his playing days were over, and then we'll deal with everything and anything regarding the college football playoff. So without further ado, let's get into that interview. I'm here with Anthony Heron. He is a former NFL and AFL player, now an analyst for the Pac-12 Network. He also dabbles with NBC, ESPN, CBS as well. The man is all around college football and other sports. Anthony, thanks for joining the show. How are you? Brown, it doesn't get much better than this time of the year. We finally have all the tangible evidence. We know what's going to happen as far as the college football postseason. And so now, it's just about waiting to see what happens with the top four teams. So it's a good time to be a football fan. Right. Now we get to talk about that, and there's plenty to chat about regarding college football, but I wanted to turn back the clocks a little bit and get to know how you got to where you are currently in the broadcasting realm. I know you played college football as a defensive lineman for the Iowa Hawkeyes. You were a team captain senior year in 2000, but record aside, stats aside, what I really want to know is how you ended up with the nickname Grandpa while you were on that football team. <laughs> You're doing your homework, I see. That's right. I just, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, my, my friends and teammates, they nicknamed me Grandpa at some point after I'd been there for a couple of years. I guess it was twofold because I always had these back and knee issues that just sort of followed me around, stop by stop, and before it got worse as I got into the professional ranks. But even back in college, you know, my knees were already starting to get a little rickety on me. And my, I had this big fiberglass back brace that I would wear while I practiced and sometimes in games as well, just if my back wasn't really reacting properly to all the pounding you take 
uh, as a defensive lineman in Big Ten football. And so the nickname Grandpa sort of started with that and then just my mentality. I'm a bit of an old soul. So I was always kind of that guy where the teammates would come to and they needed advice or had concerns about something or, of course, if somebody was kind of getting out of line, you know, as one of the team leaders and one of the eventual captains. And you're the one who kind of pulls the guys aside and tries to get them all, you know, back on the straight and narrow. So I guess uh, both tangibly and intangibly, they kind of viewed me as that grandpa figure. I love that. And you did mention the injuries. I know you played four seasons in the National Football League. There were sometimes spent injured, sometimes spent on the practice squad. Could you put into words how hard it is to make it in the NFL? Oh, I mean, it's, you know, I, I suppose with any endeavor that really takes all of you to try to accomplish, I mean, I, I spend a decent amount of time talking to professionals and students and athletes of all ages about these things where, you know, you're going after whatever you view as your dream scenario. And, you know, if you can put everything you have into it and then come out on the other end, regardless of the results, then, you know, that's that's kind of what you're looking for. It's kind of like Nick Saban and I were talking about the process and the major college coaches, you know, taking things a day at a time. That, for me, has always been my approach to any career path that I've, that I've attempted over the years. And they kind of got to the point where there were several different <laughs> career paths that right. I ended up going down. But, yeah, to pursue professional athletics, whether NFL or NBA or Major League Baseball, you know, they all come with different potential pitfalls that are there. But for me, the physical ailments that came with it while I played and that at this point, you know, still follow me around uh, as I've gotten older and kind of further removed from the game of football, I still look back at it and say it was worth it because it's it's provided me so many life habits and life skills that aid me on a day-to-day basis that help me to be a successful person. And that's really what it takes. It's the, the difference that I described is the jump from high school football to major college football, it's more of a, a physical jump. You know, while obviously mentally and, and emotionally there's a jump there too, schematically, some of those types of things. But physically, it's very different. You know, from high school football going to a conference like the Big Ten, the SEC, the Pac-12, huge jump there. Once you're in one of those major conferences and you're playing on the highest levels of college football, the physical jump from that to the NFL is smaller than it is from high school to college, but that mental and emotional jump is really where you have to make a big strides there. And that's what makes professional athletics so difficult amongst everything else because everyone is physically gifted, but then can you be in the right position, take advantage of the right opportunities to really thrive as a professional? You mentioned there's been several paths that have led you to where you are now with the Pac-12 Network, so I'll try to narrow that focus a little bit because we could spend a whole show on that alone, but... What made you decide to pursue broadcasting as that next chapter in your career? Well, one of the stops I made during my playing career, it was actually once I started playing arena football, living in Nashville, and the arena football season is the opposite of the outdoor season, where the fall and winter is basically what, what the common football season is. But then arena football takes place during the spring and summer. And for me, I was rehabbing from one of my many surgeries, and I stayed in Nashville over the arena football offseason, which overlaps with the high school football season down there. And there was an opportunity to go audition with a Comcast affiliate. And I did that, started calling a few high school football games, and I made a few guest appearances on a, a show in Nashville. It's sort of a, 
uh, Kelly and Michael, or for you know any older listeners, Regis and Kelly, Regis and Kathy Lee. It was like a morning news and entertainment sort of format show called Tennessee Mornings. I went on there as a guest just to talk about the Nashville Cats, the arena football team I played with. And during the interview process, they had me on a couple of times and noticed I was fairly comfortable on camera. So every time I would come back, they'd have me try something else. Hey, try reading the teleprompter here live on there. Hey, go over to the green screen, traffic guy. You know, sort of mess around doing that. And just every time I came back, I got to try another task. And that developed the habit in me to not really be afraid to just try new things and have new experiences. And there's a guy named Charlie Chase. Uh, he, he used to be syndicated on a show called Chris and Chase a long time ago. Um, but Charlie Chase, as he saw me continue to come back to his show and saw that I was comfortable on the air, he's the one who really first put the bug in my mind that you should really consider pursuing this as a career path because no matter what we have you doing, you're willing to try it, and you do seem to have sort of a natural comfort level with your delivery on the air. And that was the first time I thought about it. My, my thought my entire professional career was I'm going to – you know, play professional sports for 15 years and make millions of dollars and retire to a yacht. Even once I got to the arena league, it was, you know, I was making good money as an arena football player. I'll do this for a while and transition into coaching or whatever else. And once the broadcast mode was planted, then for me, that was just another path to try and to pursue. And once that started going well down south between Nashville and Atlanta, this has led to a lot of other very cool opportunities in the years since then. How much do you think your time as a player in the NFL and then as a player and a coach in the AFL has helped you in the booth and in the studio? Well, what's unique about my position in the broadcast booth is that when you think about it, well, one, in the booth as opposed to on the sidelines, you really don't see the, the booth analyst or the, you know, what a lot of folks know as the color commentator. You, you really don't see our face on camera that much. You mainly hear our voice, but if your listeners pay attention to it on occasion, they may notice it's normally an offensive player and most likely a quarterback who ends up being in those positions because as the analyst for the game broadcast, and you know this time where the role of the play-by-play is to sort of describe the visual of the action during the snap. Uh, the role of the sideline reporter is quite often, you know, someone who's doing updates and injury reports and interviews. The role of the analyst or the color commentator is to communicate the strategy of why something worked, why something didn't work. And quite frankly, defensive linemen in football, we're sort of the least mentally taxed position on the field. And so quite often, defensive linemen don't leave the game with a really broad knowledge of how all the intricate schemes of football and the techniques of other positions, how that all comes together. So you very rarely, if ever, see or hear defensive linemen as analysts for a football broadcast because there's just so much that happens during a football game. That's why you so frequently hear it being an offensive player and most often a quarterback because those are the positions that are used to having to know what all the other moving parts are and how that comes together. What ended up helping me in making that transition, once I got to the Big Ten Network, first season of the Big Ten Network, that network starting in 2007, that fall, that first year in the spring, the early part of 2008, I got a chance to call an Iowa Spring game. That was the same time I was transitioning from being a player in arena football to being a coach in arena football. And so while I was getting my first opportunities as a booth analyst after calling some high school games and some college games with my first bigger stage I was on with the Big Ten Network, and once I began coaching arena football, having to understand route concepts and get you know techniques taught to me by other offensive-minded coaches because the AFL 
has always been a pass first, uh, a volume scoring sort of league and route combinations, uh, even coverages defensively, things that really, you know, affected the other areas, the more skilled parts of the game that didn't really go towards the line of scrimmage. I was used to O-line and D-line play, but for me, having to learn secondary coverages, linebacker coverages, route combinations, quarterback techniques and reads, that actually helped me immensely as I transitioned into the booth because now I can communicate the game on a level that quarterbacks and receivers and defensive backs can do it as well. Let's take a quick break to keep on the Christmas lights. When we come back, we'll break down the college football playoff in part two of our interview with Anthony Heron on the bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. So getting into college football, when it was decided that it was going to move from the BCS to the college football playoff, we went from computers to a committee. Were you a fan of that decision to bring in a playoff to college football? I was. The concern I've had with it, John, this entire time is how far would we end up stretching this postseason before putting limitations on the regular season? As of right now, we've gone step by step. And, you know, I've, Brett Bielema is a guy who recruited me to Iowa, and I've had this discussion with him a bit over the years. Um, for me, I'd like to see the regular season caps at some point before we continue to expand the postseason. I don't believe we're going to expand beyond 14 anytime soon. The reason why is because right now there's so much discussion and controversy and chaos that this college football playoff process is being consumed at such a high level. You know, from the time in November, early November, when the college football playoff committee releases the very first college football playoff ranking, then week by week, Everyone's waiting on Tuesday night. And normally, it's, you know, the primetime matchups that all the eyeballs are geared towards on the field, whether it's the Thursday game or the Saturday game. But now, you even get Tuesday night where there aren't college football games being played. There isn't an NFL game being played. But the sport of football, and in this case, major college football on a Tuesday night as the college football playoff rankings are released, then that really dominates the discussion and the conversation. After Monday night football was ended on the previous night, you get another night where football is at the top of the headlines leading into Wednesday and all the reactions that take place there. Right. So the way they've designed this, I believe, is the best system that's been in place so far. I hope as they continue to tweak it, which I don't believe will happen or be expanded in any way for probably a decade, once they do, I hope it's with a cap on the regular season. Now, we don't have a hard copy outline necessarily of what the committee wants or expects to cross off those boxes and make the playoffs for those teams. In year one, remember, we had TCU and Baylor who were hurt by not having a conference championship. In year two, there was the onus on strength of schedule, non-conference schedule. This year, there was a lot of talk about unfairly perhaps leaving a team from the West Coast off the college football bracket as well. In your opinion, what do you think are the most important boxes that teams need to check off in order to make sure they have the best chance to make the college football playoff? Well, right now, from what we're saying, we know that at least you can't lose more than one game. So that part, three years in at this point, that's the consistent thing. Once you get that second loss, it makes a much longer path for you because you're going to have likely these conference champions from the Power Five conferences who end up having one loss or less. Now, this year, the anomaly was Ohio State not being a division champ, not being a conference champ, so the first time we've actually seen that play out. 
But now it's the one team where the ingredients doesn't include a conference championship, but they ended up sort of, uh, you know, taking the ingredients of Ohio State's non-conference schedule and the bulk of the other victories they had and saying that this one-loss team, even though they lost to two-loss Penn State, was still more impressive overall. So I believe one loss is kind of the, that's the main consistent ingredient from all three years so far. Beyond that, what I like about it, John, is that it's very subjective. And that's what supposedly we were clamoring for is to get the human element back into it and make it more subjective from one season to the next, even one week to the next. So it wasn't just counting on the metrics, the computers that the BCS was ranking these teams by. And I, I do find it a bit funny that, you know, most people are saying that the BCS system would have had the same four teams in the college football playoff anyway, but there's at least the anomaly that can be factored in based off of, you know, what Ohio State's non-time looks like or what the film looks like of a team like Washington by comparison to Penn State, Michigan, and Oklahoma. And so for me, I think it's the best system we've had in place because of the subjective nature and the fact that it's very difficult to, to sort of pin in from one year to the next, what is the exact formula they go by? Because they're humans, and you're going to have a dozen different bodies in the room, and different people are going to place different importances on different ingredients. There's been a lot of talk about teams that might not play in as strong of a conference scheduling at least one challenging non-conference game. And while that sounds great in theory, on the logistical sides of things, is it as easy for an AD to just call a school that might be challenging and schedule a game for that next season? Or is there difficulty with having to put a challenging team on your schedule? Because a team that might be challenging when you're doing a schedule, say, looking two years down the road, when that day comes, they might not be as good, or it might be the other side of the coin. So is there any way to make that part of non-conference games easier to schedule? Oh, I mean, it's so hard, and it's so intricate. And then once you make changes, if you're the, the program who's initiating the change, quite often you have to cut a big check to right. the team whose schedule you're negatively affecting in that way. I mean, there are major ramifications that come into these decisions. And, you know, for, from one season to the next, we tend to, you know, look at particular teams and, and handicap them or handcuff them and their postseason potential based off of this perception that they try to schedule easy. They certainly didn't try to. And that doesn't mean that Washington's non-conference schedule shouldn't be a reason that folks look at them, you know, at the corner of their eyes and say, is this really a great team? No, it deserves a second look. It deserves examination. But, you know, part of this perception, specifically with the Washington example, was the fact that they played Rutgers as their best team in the non-conference, or maybe not even the best team, but the only Power 5 team they faced in the non-conference. And Rutgers was very bad this year. we got to remember, I'm sure you know that Rutgers went on, it was nearly a handful of seasons in a row where they had been eligible for bowl games. Right. They had great success before these last two seasons. So at the time this Rutgers game was scheduled, before Chris Peterson and the staff even arrived, it looked like this was going to be at least a, a Temple-level non-conference game, or maybe even a pit or beyond, as far as what those programs look like this season. That level of opponent, an opponent that you would expect to be in the national rankings at the end of the year, just so happened, happened that Rutgers was a grease fire in the first season of that new staff that came in. And so it, it didn't work out that way. It doesn't mean, again, that Washington, I'm saying, shouldn't be penalized for it, but there's a perception that certain teams have attempted to schedule easy. It's just, it doesn't work like that. You can't, at the blink of an eye or the snap of a finger, say, 
all right, next season we think we're going to be really good. So all of a sudden, we're going to schedule a bunch of Power 5 teams in the non-conference. There are too many other logistical factors that go into how you try to piece that together. Getting into the college football playoff, when the dust finally settled and we had the four teams in Alabama, Clemson, Ohio State, and Washington, do you think those were the best four teams for this year to make the college football playoff? I believe those were the four best seasons up to that point, yes. I mean, the the best team discussion is a bit nebulous because each matchup can end up being very, very different. You know, there's a chance that a team, you can look at a team like, you know, Colorado, you know, maybe on a different day, Colorado could have defeated a team like a Clemson because of the way Colorado plays defense and how their secondary does a great job of catter match. They've got linebackers who can run a little bit, and so maybe they can slide Deshaun Jackson. You know, there's things like that that when I say Colorado is one of the four best teams in the country, no. But are there a couple of teams like Princeton and Ohio State who I feel like Colorado may match up well against? Yeah, so I think you can go beyond that four. And so the best team, that's extremely subjective. And so it's a combination of who are the teams, by my estimation, if I was on the committee, would be who are the teams that, one, look the best on film, and that, two, have put the best resume together. And that, to me, is what needs to combine to fit the teams who belong in that college football playoff. And so the word that people tend to use is deserves. Are they most deserving? You know, it's something that can be easily dismissed by folks because the word deserve sounds like you're giving them something. Through a 12-week regular season, if you're going to tell me that you gave Washington anything or them blowing out one of the top 10 teams in the country in Colorado in the Pac-12 championship game, that you're just gift-wrapping something for Washington, been one of the most dominant teams in the country all year. Right. No, you're not gift-wrapping anything for Ohio State or Washington. They have earned their way into that college football playoff picture, just like if the opinion from a subjective standpoint of that committee was different and Penn State got in over Washington or over Ohio State, the Nittany Lions have earned their way into that as well. That just was not the decision of the committee this year. And as we know, Penn State ended up being the first team left out, a team which many argued were deserving of getting in. For starters, though, if you told a Nittany Lions fan before the season they would only lose twice and make the Rose Bowl, they'd probably bend down and kiss your feet. But this was a team that responds to that 42-39 loss on the road to Pitt and 49-10 beat down to Michigan, albeit on the road again, to go on to beat Ohio State, win the Big Ten East, win the Big Ten title, coming from behind to beat Wisconsin, but they don't end up getting in, and I think the large part of that was because of those two losses. What do you think the biggest reason was for them being left out of the top four? It was a pit loss. I mean, a lot of folks point to that that 39-point blowout versus Michigan is saying that that's what eliminated them. I don't think that's it, because within the Big Ten, Penn State performed extremely well, well enough to win the Big Ten championship. And not only the regular season crowd advancing to the championship game and winning the East Division, they went there and had a magnificent comeback against Wisconsin, a team that a lot of folks, I think maybe even the majority of people, I don't know what the betting lines were on the game going in, but my impression was that the majority of people felt Wisconsin would beat Penn State in the Big Ten Championship game. Once they were down uh, three touchdowns, a lot of folks said, see, told you so, and that wasn't the case. Penn State was able to fire their way back into that game. McSorley and um, you know Barkley and all these guys took over, and the defense was able to lock Wisconsin down, but the regular season wasn't the only part of it. That non-conference loss they had to fit is what separated them from Ohio State, because if that's a one-loss Penn State team going in with no non-conference loss to a right fit, 
yeah, we got blown out by Michigan, but guess what? We beat Ohio State, and we're a one-loss team. That's why I go back to that point I made previously. The thing we've seen consistent in all years, we have yet to see any team in the college football playoff with more than one loss on their full plate of games. That second loss, not just Michigan, because Michigan's great and they blew a lot of people out, the loss to Pitt, to me, is really what separated Penn State from their ability to be in the college football playoff picture. And the other team that has had some chirping for argument's sake was Michigan because they're a team, again, with two losses and they happen to come and really they're only two difficult road games for this season. But when the final rankings came out before the last games, we were told that what separated Washington and Michigan from the fourth and fifth spots, it was an incredibly slim margin for that. But then they don't end up playing on that final weekend. And because of what Penn State was able to do and what Ohio State had done, what Clemson had done, what Washington did by winning Friday, there was really no way to kind of put them in. Do you think they have any reason for complaint as to why they didn't get in as well? No reason for complaint, but reason for disappointment. And I had a, a quick Twitter saying with uh, Danny Connell as the announcements were coming out because initially Danny was making the point that, well, you know, how do you think Penn State feels? They're sitting at home disappointed right now. Uh, the point he was really attempting to make, uh, he just he named the wrong team. It really wasn't Penn State feeling disappointed because for them, similar to my Iowa Hawkeyes last season, they came in with expectations of, hey, we're, we're hoping to make a good bowl game. Let's see if we can get back into the January bowl. And then next thing you know, you're on this magical run and you're in the top 10 and the top five in the country and you got a shot at a Big Ten championship. You're going to Indianapolis and then poof. Even though you come out of that game still ranked high, you're going to the Rose Bowl instead in the season where you didn't have national championship expectations. That's where Iowa was last season as well. And that's why I believe Penn State, their coaches, their players, their fan base feel awesome about being in the Rose Bowl. Michigan, on the other hand, they're very disappointed about just being in the January Bowl again. The Wolverines are a team that really had national championship expectations. They feel that they're one of, if not the best teams in the country. Now, I disagree with them on that feeling. I don't think they're one of the best teams. Well, they're not one of the best four teams in the country. Uh, they shouldn't be in the national championship race as far as the top four in the college football playoff goes. But Michigan's a good team. They had a very nice season. And should they be pleased with playing against Florida State in the one bowl? Yes. Are they? I don't believe so. It's going to take them a few days of wool licking, I still think, before they can really get themselves geared up but what for them is coming off of disappointment not being included in the playoffs. I know you've got to keep an open mind as a member of the media and especially working with the Pac-12, but how excited were you for that Iowa game-winning field goal over Michigan earlier this year? Oh, it was phenomenal. And for me, after being on this side of it for so long, I mean, I grew up in Chicago, huge Bulls fan, huge Bears fan, and just being on this other side of it, both as an athlete, as a coach, and then as a member of the media, there's a, an element of just, you know, seeing how the sausage is made where there's not a level of fandom for those teams like I had growing up as a kid. And even moving back to the city and living in Chicago again for a handful of years now, you know, watching those teams and then covering the Bears here in the city, that still hasn't returned. And I don't know if it ever will, and there's a part of me that's disappointed by that. But it's different for me, and I believe for a lot of people, when you're talking about your college, your alma mater, there's just... For me, I've been able to maintain a level of fanaticism for the way that I feel great 
win my Iowa Hawkeyes and do great things. So that moment where he kicked the field goal against Michigan, yes, I, I was on the road. I was in a hotel somewhere, and I, I let out a big fist pump. I'm sitting in my hotel room alone. I had just gotten off the air from some Pac-12 broadcast. I'm in the room yelling like an idiot when that field goal goes through because for me, that's still the team that my, my lifeblood still pumps with that black and gold from the Iowa Hawkeyes. So I'm still able to have that fandom type of feeling with that team in a way that I really can't with other teams that I grew up rooting for. Completely understandable. I hope the hotel staff was equally understanding if they may have heard noises coming from your room. They got to understand where you're coming <laughs> from. I get it. So we've got number four, Washington, playing number one, Alabama, in the Peach Bowl at the Georgia Dome. And you tweeted out the other day you watched a lot of football this year and that Washington was one of the most complete teams and the most consistent fashion all year. UW has 12 wins for the first time since 91. And though people would argue they don't have that impressive non-conference game win, they did beat a lot of great ranked teams throughout the season, beat a lot of teams really handedly. What can we expect to see Washington try to do during that matchup against an undefeated Alabama team to give them the best shot of winning that football game? Well, what's going to surprise people about Washington who haven't really watched them much if at all this season, they're going to be surprised by Washington on the line of scrimmage. I mean, there's deservedly been a lot of attention paid to Jake Browning and there's an amazing season he's had as a passer, as a quarterback. Um, you know, he sort of leaked his way out of the Heisman Trophy discussion with a couple of the late performances, the loss to USC, and not looking great in the Pac-12 championship game. But beyond Jake Browning and what he's done throwing the football, they've got two running backs, and LeVon Cole and Miles Gaskin. And Chris Peterson, as Washington's head coach, this isn't new for him necessarily because I called a number of his games when he was back at Boise State. I was calling games for NBC Sports. At Boise State, Early on, when they were really doing some great things, there was the Statue of Liberty and the Fleet Flickers and sort of these cute, exotic types of offensive plays that made highlights. Once he got things rolling and they were really recruiting a different brand of athletes to the Idaho, he was good on the line of scrimmage. He was putting offensive and defensive linemen into the NFL. They were running the football. That's what gave them an all-around level of efficiency that most other teams aren't able to execute because there's a high volume of offensive plays that are there for Washington. A lot of motions and a lot of different tempos that they execute these things at. So it's not just going to be, hey, cute little Washington come out and try to go spread and run the air raid. That's not how they roll. They can come out with an eye backfield set or with 22 personnel with two tight ends, two running backs on the field at the same time and try to bludgeon you. So the versatility that they can employ offensively is going to be very different than anything Alabama's faced this entire regular season because as amazing as the athletes are in the SEC and as dominant and you know physically as pounding as these offenses can be down in that part of the country, what they aren't very often is diverse. And so Washington is going to be a different system than they've really seen because Chris Peterson's system is like schizophrenia without the paranoia. They can fit any personality that's necessary in any game situation. So if Alabama's defense thinks they have them pinned in in one particular brand of football, then Washington's going to come out the next series and show them something different. So you're expecting a close game or a shootout to go along with Washington's offense? Do you have a gauge on how you think the game might go? I want to study Alabama more closely and get a better sense for my, my early expectations right now. I'm not having watched the Tide as closely about as I've watched Pac-12 and Big Ten teams throughout the regular season. I do believe, and I don't think there's any debate, that the personnel 
top to bottom on the roster for Alabama exceeds the personnel for Washington, but not by nearly the margin that people believe. There are going to be four defensive backs on the field for Washington, maybe five, that are going to be in the NFL within the next year or two. So, I mean, they can hang with anybody at the skill position. I already mentioned two, two running backs for Washington. They've got offensive and defensive linemen at Washington that can play in the SEC. Will they all start at Alabama? Maybe not, but they've got a guy at defensive tackle, Greg Gaze, another 320-pounder, Adina Bea, another 315-pounder, and Eliza Falls, who can all move. They play hard. They run. They rotate in and out. Where Washington is at its biggest deficit, I believe, is the edge rusher. Their best edge rusher, a guy named JoJo Mathis, ended up being injured towards the end of the season, hasn't been able to return to the lineup. He's not expected back in the Peach Bowl. And their best inside linebacker, probably the best inside linebacker in the Pac-12, one of the best in the country, is the Victor. Also, not expected back in the lineup in time for the college football semifinals. So what that does is the physical advantage that Alabama has on the line of scrimmage, the fact that two of the best front seven players for Washington won't be there, just enhances the physical advantage that's there. And so that means that defensively, They've really got to make sure they're efficient being Washington with the way they rotate and try to keep fresh bodies running in and out of the field because Pete Kwiatkowski, their defensive coordinator, does that, manages the time spent on the field by his personnel as well as any defensive coordinator in the country. So they keep fresh bodies running at you series after series, and they play extremely hard. So overall, I would say I do expect a close game for the most part, and then maybe we get into the fourth quarter and just the personnel of Alabama can find a way to sort of take control of the game and put it more in their favor at some point in the fourth quarter. That's kind of my early impression before I get to watch and break down more of Alabama's film. On the other side, we got number three, Ohio State, number two, Clemson, the Fiesta Bowl, Glendale, Arizona. We've got a Heisman candidate going. We've got Urban Meyer on one sideline, the prestigious, the Ohio State University. What do you like in that game? Who do you think is going to come out on top there? I'm going Clemson because I've seen Clemson look closer to themselves than I believe Ohio State has as consistently this year. Honestly, just because of the, the monumental expectations for both teams from Ohio State and Clemson with J.T. Barrett returning a quarterback for Ohio State, I viewed him as one of the highest and front runners just to the same degree that I viewed Deshaun Jackson. I mean, you think about the last time J.T. Barrett was a full-time starter, he set a Big Ten record for, you know, touchdowns and counter for him. And this is a guy who was able to light up the scoreboard two seasons back. This season, it, it just hasn't been able to come close to that type of productivity, at least not on a consistent basis for Ohio State, where Clemson defensively is, is the biggest concern I have with them because they've got great personnel on defense. They don't always execute at that high a level, but now having a few weeks to get ready and get amped up for that game, the defensive front, especially on the interior, they're the defensive tackles for Clemson that can really bring it. They've, of course, had some of the top recruits in the country, just like Ohio State has. So I don't really expect a shootout. I don't expect these two multidimensional talented quarterbacks to just light up the scoreboard the entire game. These are two teams that pride themselves on strong defense. We just saw Ohio State have to outlast Michigan in the defensive struggle uh, just a couple of weeks ago. I expect something similar here, probably a game, Again, before I can break down film on both teams a little more closely, I expect a type of game where the first half will be extremely low scoring, you know, maybe a turnover field goal or something late kind of, you know, decides who's going to be leading at halftime. Then maybe in the second half, once some adjustments get made, you tend to see some of these bigger bowl games have a different tempo in the second half when the offense come out of the locker room 
they can sort of establish a bit more of what their personality is on that side of the football. That would be my expectation here, a very slow sort of almost plotting first half and then a few offensive explosions in the second half between Ohio State and Clemson. So the big question then has to be, who do you see as of now, without really watching as much film, just your gut reaction, who do you think's taking home the college football national championship? I believe it's going to be tough duty for Washington to be able to outlast Alabama and come away from that. So right now, as we sit here, I would pick Alabama in the Peach Bowl. And I I think overall I'm going to go with Clemson in the Fiesta Bowl. I think they're going to outlast Ohio State, and we will end up with a rematch between the Tide and the Tigers. Could have our first repeat college football playoff champion if Alabama is able to pull that off. Yes, we certainly could. I mean, right now I, I have a hard time picking anyone over Alabama. You know, the, the all-time great discussion that folks have begun, I think that should specifically be centered on the defensive side of the football because they've done some amazing things in Tuscaloosa, taking the football away from the opponent and putting it into the end zone. While we've seen their quarterback, Jalen Hurts, throw and throw as a thrower of the football, that still hasn't come full circle yet. I mean, he's an immense talent. He's extremely impressive. He's not a guy who Alabama should be comfortable sitting in the pocket and allowing him to carve up defense. Right. And with good reason, they don't do that. But overall, I think Alabama is you know, certainly the favorite, if not the heavy favorite, over all these teams in the college football playoff picture because from a personnel and from a coaching standpoint, they just tend to be beyond where their opponents are. Are there any other bowl games that you're looking forward to? The Rose Bowl with USC and Penn State, the list goes on. Are there some that stand out that you're also looking forward to on top of just the college football national championship playoff? Well, the Rose Bowl tends to get really great matchups with very hot teams. And, you know, we see another season, you reference the Penn State-USC game because when you look at USC and how they operated, I was telling folks for, you know, since the early part of November, that the Trojans had really started to play a strong brand of football. They were looking like the best team in the Pac-12. I predicted their upset victory over Washington and that they had a shot at running the table, which they did. It just didn't ultimately end up putting them in the Pac-12 championship game. And I do feel it was overstated the shot that USC may have had at the college football playoff picture. That, to me, is overestimating whether or not the hot team should be in the playoff. It's not just about being the hot team or playing the best football late. The month of September matters, and so right. their one and three starts ended up handicapping USC. But that Rose Bowl should be a lot of fun between the Trojans and the Nittany Lions because they're both very hot in the way they finish the season up. Well, I got to ask you this one. January 2nd, Outback Bowl, Florida against your alma mater. Who do you got? I'm going with the Hawkeyes in that one. And the interesting thing is that you know the way the last time, I believe, Iowa was in the Outback Bowl, it was sort of, and it was against Florida, and it was a very controversial finish the way it ended up playing out because it looked like Iowa had a shot of recovering an outside kick, which would have given them an opportunity for a game-winning drive. And there was sort of a phantom call that they called on Chad Greenway, their All-American linebacker who's still with the Minnesota Vikings at this point. And Chad ended up actually tweeting about it and having some fun with it the other day. Just he, he actually, and someone responded to it saying, you know, with an image of the kicker kicking the onside kick and Greenway still being behind, you know, the, the yard marker where the ball is being kicked from. So the bad call from the official. If there were a review back then in the college game, it's a call that would have been overturned. So there's some things for the Iowa Hawkeye fans where there's some symmetry, sort of a full circle kind of nature to getting this matchup against Florida and another opportunity to try to take the Gators down in the outback bowl.
Should we take the under in that game? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what the line is or what the over-under is just set at, but my guess would be I wouldn't expect a lot of fireworks in that one between two, two teams that really pride themselves on defense and two coaches who know with where their program is at right now that they need to pride themselves on defense. So the offenses, I don't anticipate taking too many chances on the field that day either. I mean, life is too short to take the under, but that might be one where you got to hammer that into the ground unless it's maybe 17. We'll see uh, once those are released. (laughs) I know the Heisman Trophy candidates have been released, and the number one and number two most talked about names for that are, of course, Deshaun Watson from Clemson and Lamar Jackson from Louisville. And while that debate will go on whether Lamar might have lost his opportunity to win with some not as great performances toward the end of the season or Deshaun Watson's high interception rate for Clemson. I think another debate that we'll we'll eventually get into will be if both those players can make it in the National Football League because I'm sure that's their end goal as well. I see some sort of comparisons to both. Deshaun Watson might have that even closer to a couple years ago, that Jameis Winston mindset where he's not afraid to attack a defense, but that does result in some interceptions, where Lamar Jackson is very close to a really the closest thing we've come to, a Michael Vick-type quarterback, where he might not stay in the pocket as long, but he's so electric on the offensive side of the football, you really never know what he's going to do or what he'll be capable of doing as far as what he can do with his feet. Do you think both those quarterbacks might make it in the long run after the Heisman Trophy is all said and done? in the National Football League? They both certainly have their opportunity. By comparison between the two, where Lamar Jackson is more electric as a runner than Deshaun Watson is, you know, I, I think the comparison you make there between Jackson and Michael Vick, that, that's fairly apt. Um, you know, Jackson is, is bigger, taller than Michael Vick was. He certainly is one of these 6'5", 240-pound pocket passers. We obviously know that. But he's Michael Vick is so small a frame. I was with the Atlanta Falcons in 2004-2005 when he was our quarterback there. He led us to the NFC Championship game in 04. So I've been around Mike Vick a good bit. You know, we came out in the same year, 2001, with both our rookie years. Even a short, smaller frame guy for a quarterback. Lamar Jackson is taller, razier, but he's got that electric sort of running ability. Not as refined from the pocket as a passer. While Deshaun Jackson, uh, by comparison to the Jake Brownings of the world um, who, you know, operate mainly from within the pocket. Deshaun Jackson may not be the most refined from within the pocket, but he's certainly further along in his development of the pocket passer than what Lamar Jackson is. That's part of what I believe separated Deshaun Watson from the ability to win the Heisman this year. He seemed to make a concerted effort this season to improve his game as a quarterback between the tackles and up above the shoulders and how he operated there. We did some great things, put up some great numbers, had a few more turnovers, but there wasn't that electric highlight ability uh, that he'd been able to display in years past as a runner and why I believe Lamar Jackson will end up winning the Heisman. But from an NFL standpoint, Deshaun Watson, he's far more ready for prime time and prepared to make that transition because of what he's worked at doing within the pocket by comparison to Lamar Jackson, who's probably still a year or two away from really making that pocket development that you need to in the National Football League. Before I get you out of here, I know aside from keeping up on all things college football, which will have you engrossed for the next month or so, you've got the U.S. Army All-American Bowl coming up, really the premier high school All-American game we've got going. That's January 7th, and you'll be a part of that. Can you just talk about 
what you're doing with that game and, and what you're doing with some side work as well when it comes to the high school game and some of those different things? Well, the U.S. Army All-American Bowl, as you referenced, the, being the premier high school All-American game, it, it's a fun one. And I've been doing that for NBC for, I believe this will be six years now, for the Army Bowl. And it's a full week of activities they have. And by comparison to some of the other All-Star games out there, there's a direct correlation with the time that the players who attend the Army Bowl down in San Antonio, they spend time with our servicemen and service women from the Army, and they get to see the, the Center for the Intrepid down in San Antonio. So there's some things off the field that they do to try to make sure it's a well-rounded experience throughout that week in San Antonio where the athletes get something out of it, not just on the field, but off the field as well. When you look at the talent on the field, though, I mean, there have been some of the future stars of the college and professional world who come to the broadcast. You know, Christian McCaffrey was in that game. Derrick Henry has been in the game since I called it, even before I was on the broadcast, Andrew Luck was in the game. And so they've had some of the better players in the entire country that have come through the Army Bowl in San Antonio over the years. And this year's crop of talent looks like as good as any. So, I mean, from one season to the next, it's always difficult to tell who those future stars will really be. But as of right now, it's the top players in the country at the high school level. It makes for a very fun broadcast because we have the declarations where the kids will have the hat out on the table and they'll declare make their commitment of where they're going to spend the next four or five years of their life playing college football in some cases, you know, three years like Christian McCaffrey who just announced for the draft. But overall, it makes for a very fun show to do if you really like the sport of football. Well, Anthony, it was a pleasure getting to speak college football with you, getting to know a little bit more about what you were able to do in your playing career and then in the broadcast booth and breaking down all the crazy things we have going on year to year when this college football playoff starts coming up and everything is announced with that and we get our bowl games and who's going to be in the final four. There's definitely more than enough to talk about. Enjoy the holiday. Enjoy the bowls. Enjoy the college football playoffs and everything that's going to be going on after that with you in the next couple months or so to definitely keep keep you busy and on top of everything you're doing a great job explaining it for all of us and i appreciate you coming on i appreciate you having me on john thanks for the ask and it's a great discussion we'll do it again sometime that's gonna do it for the bridge you can hear this episode and all previous episodes over on my website at londonbridge.com that's l-u-n-d-i-n-b-r-i-d-g-e you can also follow me on twitter under that same handle at london bridge you can subscribe to the bridge sports podcast on itunes so you'll immediately be notified when new episodes are posted each week And you can find the Bridge Sports Podcast on Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and TuneIn. And you can listen to the show live every Wednesday night at SportsRadioAmerica.com or on the TuneIn app under Sports Radio America. On the next installment of the Bridge, we'll get into the National Football League. Take a look at what's been going on in the winter meetings in the MLB. Have a look-see around the NBA, see if there's any new college football playoff news, and we'll have another special holiday segment on The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports.